0: It can be hard to know what our kids are really thinking and feeling, but when we encourage kids to engage with us in conversation, and when we lean in and actively listen, we inevitably learn something that helps us do better by them. Welcome to Dear Highlights, the podcast inspired by letters and emails from kids who write to highlights, seeking a listening ear and a little guidance as they wind their way through childhood. A short, sweet season, but also a period of heavy lifting for kids. I'm Christine French Cully, editor-in-chief of Highlights, and your podcast host. I'm joined by Hilary Bates, our podcast producer and thoughtful mom of two. We're here to amplify the voices of children and to explore with expert guests many of the issues that kids and families wrestle with regularly. We're glad you've joined us.
1: Dear Highlights, my highlights. mom and dad dear have been separated for about a month. I get keys.
0: We have a very interesting conversation to share today, Hillary, and in the end, I think parents are going to find it reassuring. You know, we usually begin each episode by reading some of our kids' mail. That relates directly to the topic we're discussing. But today, we're departing from that format. Uh, We think this topic is really relevant to today's parents. We've been thinking a lot about how parents today have never had more information about parenting. But yet, we've never been less sure of ourselves. Hillary, you're a thoughtful parent, and I know you do a lot of reading, but do you ever ask yourself, am I doing this wrong?
1: Well, just probably about every day. I mean, I think it's definitely undeniably true that we have so much access to information now, and that is really exciting and cool, especially if you're someone that wants to do things the best way. And who wants to do things the best way more than someone who has just brought home a precious perfect infant. I was definitely the kind of person that thinks you attack every problem by going to the library, you know, every new change in life. And when I brought my babies home, I immediately had all these decisions to make that felt big and heavy, like what was the best way to feed my child? What was the best way to put them to sleep? That was a big one in our house. And I was looking for information and studies and expertise in the world. But all of a sudden you find that even if you're an educated person, you consume a lot of information, are you really a data expert?
0: Well, that's why we have a data expert on today's episode. Uh, we're going to discuss what data can and cannot tell us about parenting. Our guest today is Dr. Emily Oster, and she's a mom of two and holds a PhD in economics from Harvard. She's currently a professor of economics at Brown University, and she's also the author of three parenting books Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. And in her books, she analyzes the data behind choices in pregnancy and parenting to try to help improve decision making for parents who really want to be thoughtful. Dr. Emily Oster, thank you for joining us today. This is the first time on our parenting podcast that we've had the pleasure of interviewing an economist. So let's begin by talking a little about your field of study. Will you tell us, please, what drew you to study economics? What do you love about it? And how do you see it as a way of solving problems and helping us make decisions, especially decisions related to raising children?
2: I think that it's useful in answering this to, to tell you a little bit about my background. Both of my parents are economists, which, you know, take from that what, what you will. but. The reason that that's important is not so much that I think that that influenced the fact that I became an economist although of course I think that's that's true. The reason I think it's important is that it has has really influenced the way that I think about bringing economic tools to the space of the home to pregnancy and and to parenting. so for me the the value that economics brings to any kind of decision making is a combination of being, Uh, serious and thoughtful about data. So particularly in the kind of economics that I'm trained in, we spend a lot of time trying to understand what we can learn from data about any questions. My academic research is largely about health behaviors, but the the data pieces of that are very consistent across a lot of spaces. And at the same time, economics is also really a decision science. So it's, it's a set of tools to try to understand how can I use these data to make a thoughtful decision which weighs costs and benefits and helps me get to a, a good decision. When I was a kid, my parents did that all the time. My mother in particular is quite gifted at the idea that economic tools are useful in making all kinds of decisions like who should run the dishwasher and you know, should we grocery shop for ourselves? And so that is something I just grew up with, the idea that, well, of course, economics is the way that you run your household. And, um, you know, when I got to be an adult, I realized not everyone had that experience, but I guess part of of my goal is to bring everyone that exciting experience.
0: (laughs) You know, in modern life, even those of us who are not economists have access to so much information that it can be overwhelming. If we wish to do so, we could probably read about a new study every week that might impact our parenting decisions Everything from the impact of screen time on our kids, to the safety and efficacy of sunscreen, to the correlation of bedtimes with good grades. But not all of this information is equally valuable, and in fact, much of it may be weak or inconclusive. What advice do you have for parents who want the very best for their children and are trying to decide what information is really worthy of their attention?
2: I think in some ways the most important thing for people to understand is that Almost never is it the case that some new study that you observe is the full answer to a question. So in the current media environment, it's very common to see headlines, as you mentioned, that say, you know, new study shows, you know, even five minutes a day of screen time causes, you know, children to, I don't know, be unable to fly or whatever is the the bad thing that can happen. And those kind of of headlines or those kind of that kind of focus on a single study, I think is unhelpful for for parents. So when people decide, make these kinds of decisions, like the question, how much screen time should my kid have? What is a reasonable way to approach screen time in my house? I would often urge people to, to step back from that decision, to not make that decision anew every time there is a new study, but to take a moment, take some time to, to think carefully through what the decision should be there in the context of all of the evidence that we know. So in the in the case of screen time, we, we have a good sense looking at entire literature together about what are the impacts of screens or at least some sense of, of, of what's the range of possible impacts. That's a kind of information parents can take and then use to make their decisions while recognizing that, especially as we talk about parenting older kids, kids, my kids are seven and 11, it's rarely the case when I make decisions about my kids that I can say, here's a piece of data that's gonna tell me exactly what to do. It's much more common that I will say, here's a bunch of information from which I can learn something about the evidence on this question, and then I'm gonna incorporate some of the preferences of our family, some of the values, some of the logistics, some of the constraints, and try to come out with a decision that that works for us. So in some sense, I, I hope that parents, I often try to just counsel parents, like, don't react to that one study. Just like, don't assume that there's something else that you need to know. Don't change your behavior just because, you know, the USA Today says some headline that freaks you out.
0: I think it's fair to say that it's often the case that the way these studies are reported on by mainstream media uh, leads us to being more uncertain and may cause us to overreact to something we hear.
1: Well, you know, I think getting a little bit underneath that, I was talking to some parents, you know, in preparation for this episode about that experience of sort of reading a news story and having that feeling of panic, like, because you just found out something you're doing, like someone is suggesting is bad for your kid. And, you know... um, I think one of the things I was curious about is, you know, for many people, parenting is one of the most important things we feel like we do with our time. And I wonder if some of the people involved in communicating these things, both from people who do this research themselves to the media that are telling about this research, sort of have a natural bias to wanting to form conclusions because we all want to know that we are doing this right.
2: There's very much something to that, and I think that the biases go in a bunch of different directions. So, from the individual parent standpoint, I think we are always searching for an answer to how to do it right. And we really we want to do it right, as you say. This is really important. This is the most important thing I'm doing with my time every single day, is thinking about how to parent my my kids, and I want to do it right. And so, if there's a study which says either that I'm doing it wrong. Or something I could do to do it right. I'm drawn to okay. Well, the, you know, this is something I wanna I wanna learn from, and I think that influences a lot of the way we consume these these kind of uh, these kind of reports. And it's something we have to discipline if we don't want to overreact. Right? It's something you li- you literally have to take a step and say, okay, no, I'm not going to to kind of react to this the way my gut tells me. I think on the on the media side, there's an, another thing going on. Which is that um, you know people want people to read, and so in a world in which parents want to be right and the media wants uh, people to read their stuff, it's a lot more beneficial to write a thing that says you know here's how to do it right, as opposed to you know this new study adds a small amount of information to the other 27 studies we already have about this topic. (laughs) It's like not that's not that's
1: not clickbait. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe maybe as an audience, we all need to start getting a lot more excited about clicking on something that says, here's a small revision to something we already have 27 studies about.
2: <laughs> Meta-analysis
1: adds new element. <laughs> right. Um, you know, one of the things we were also talking about is, you know, parents get a lot of media messages about what's best for their kids. But one thing that's confusing is best is not always defined that well for ourselves internally. And we have Values that come into play. There's things that are a lot easier to study for economists, right? Like things that can be quantified, like what a child earns when they grow up. And then there's things that there's a lot of challenge to quantify, like how creative are they, or how how do they approach the world with curiosity, which may be things we really want to inculcate in our kids, right? Um, I'm curious how you as an economist and a parent yourself, think about the outcomes that matter to you in parenting?
2: It's a great question. Uh, And it comes up all the time in the way that we study data on schools. So when you ask, you know, what makes a good school, which is a question many parents ask, when parents ask that, I think they mean something pretty broad. You know, what's it like when I ask what's the best school for my kid? I mean, like, where is a place that they're going to learn and they're going to be happy and feel supported and you develop as a person and find the things they're good at and all of this other stuff. And when we ask in the data, what makes a good school? We mean, how did their test scores appear in the like in ELA and math in the last year? And that's effectively all, all we can measure, or at least a huge share of what we can uh, what we can measure, and it's not the same as what we care about. It's not uh, unrelated. Isn't it, it? Maybe it's a piece of it, but it's only a it's only a small piece. And um, and I think it leads to, in some ways, an, an overemphasis on those on those kind of outcomes when we're talking about evaluating schools, um, it, you know, or any any other kinds of uh, other kinds of intervention. You know, for myself, I think I I try hard to. Be explicit upfront, and my husband and I try hard to be explicit about you know what are the things we're trying to achieve, what are the things that we would view as kind of success, or what are the things that we want for our, for our kids, and then try ourselves to evaluate you know are the things we're doing delivering those uh, you know delivering those things. But but from a policy standpoint, it's much harder to do that. As an individual parent, you can say, is this school making my kid happy? Does this seem like a place they would be? they would be comfortable from a a broader societal standpoint. We kind of have these test scores. It's not obvious what other data we could have.
0: Emily, while we're on the subject of schools and academic success, I'd like to ask about one specific topic that is close to our hearts here at Highlights, and that's reading to young children. Back in the mid nineties, some research emerged that suggested that there's a significant gap in early life language exposure between higher income children and lower income children. Can you talk a bit about this research reported as the 30 million word gap and explain how its interpretation may have led to some ineffective policy outcomes for kids?
2: This research initially uh, came came out, um, in the mid nineties. And it's, uh, it's in a study by Hart and Bisley. And what they did was they, they recruited some families and the families sort of varied. It's not that many, it's maybe like 70 families. And they varied in socioeconomic status, um, were poor families and, and richer families. And they, uh, they, they had these methods of sort of measuring how many words kids had heard. And so they, they, measure that over time and then they multiplied it by some different numbers and they they effectively observed that the kids in the uh in the in the higher income uh in the higher income age group were sort of hearing more words than the kids in in the in the lower income families and uh, they also observed that the children of higher income families and this is broadly true not just in their data were performing better in school and had better test scores. <laughs> which is what we can measure. And they, they therefore sort of linked those two facts and thought about the idea that it's you know, very important to, to, um, to expose kids to, to language. So what's interesting about this kind of finding is sort of the way that we take it as parents or the way that we sort of turn it into something beyond what it is. So it is definitely true that exposure to language is helpful for kids in learning to, to speak. I mean, we sort of know that from the way that people learn to speak. Mm-hmm. And it's also the case when we look, for example, at reading that actually there's some good evidence that reading to kids early on has positive impacts on their literacy and on the speed with which they learn to read. So it's, it's pretty clear that there's something in this space about language that's quite important for kids learning. However, one of the things that happened as the, as a result of these findings is we got this kind of push towards the idea that just talking more to your kids is, is good. That the more things you say, the better. And that that's how to sort of optimize your kid. And this kind of gets back to, to the thing we were saying before about wanting to be right, that I want it, I want to sort of do everything. I want to do everything for my kid. And if you're telling me, you know, 30,000 words are, are good or 60,000 words are good, like hundred thousand words, it's probably even better. And, and we get into that. We've gotten into this place where I think there's a lot of pressure sometimes on parents. effectively narrate everything that happens so people tell me you know is it really that important that i tell my kid what's happening as i change their diaper that as i have my my three-week-old infant i have to be like now mommy's taking your diaper off oh look you know you peed in your diaper like do i have to do that (laughs) and and the kind of general finding that no you know that's not what's implied by this literature but i think it happens frequently that we take a, a grain of something that's right that could be useful for thinking about policy or, or to some extent for thinking about, about behavior. And then we turn it into, you know, well, this is how to be the best parent is to talk about the diapers.
0: It's a good way to make ourselves kind of crazy.
2: (laughs) No, it's a good way to make yourself crazy and to feel, and, and also really to feel like you're always failing. And that's the bit that I worry about is that, that this, some of these things lead to people just feeling like, I can't, I, I can't achieve the, this thing that I want because I just don't have the emotional energy to narrate the diaper changes and already I'm failing.
1: Yeah. yeah. Or they are doing it and they're just exhausting themselves to an extent that is not necessary. I mean, I have to laugh when you bring that one up, Emily, cause I, my kids now are older yeah. and I totally narrated it. Not out of my own personal interest in doing so, but because I had sort of, you know, absorbed some of these messages and, um, you know, now as an older parent, part of what I hope, hope to give to younger parents a lot of times is just that so much of that stuff just sort of is the sand that washes away on the beach and it does not seem super relevant to what's going on five or six years later. And it's hard in that moment. I think it's amazing as a parent of older kids when I think back on
2: some of the things and not that I not that I don't understand why I was obsessed about them at the time, but in some ways you sort of can't, I can't quite understand why did I think so much about that.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, I think it's that thing that we so much love our kids and want to be doing a good job. And after all, you don't get a report card until later when you do. And it's they are 14 and it's unkind, but you know,
2: it's a, it's yeah. hundred percent. It's an F when they're 14. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think there are plenty of times that an idea takes root in our culture in part out of data and in part, perhaps it just feels right to us. So there's a lot of discussion right now about the child mental health crisis, and it's been tied to the pandemic. You know, we know there's a lot of data that we know is something going on with kids' mental health in the last decade. Absolutely. Right. There might be, a, there probably are a lot of factors in that. Um, I think intuitively it makes sense to us that children have suffered during a global pandemic. Um But we also might draw some of the wrong conclusions at times because of the power of that intuition. And we're making a lot of policy decisions right now around this issue, around what schools need to do, around what other folks need to do, and what parents need to do. Um, How can those who are interested in helping kids equip themselves to do a better job of interpreting studies that are coming out about mental health in kids right now? it's it's a great question i think you're absolutely right that uh that it is
2: it is easy and probably there is something to the idea that uh that the pandemic has had impacts on uh on on mental health for for kids uh but it's also the case that like with many other things i think the pandemic showed us problems that were there before so we were already in a in a set of trends around mental health in kids that were not good and or did the pandemic change that trend in in some way perhaps but it would be a mistake to to say this is just a problem associated with the pandemic and i think that's where i worry not so much that we will you know that we will not that we that it's i don't think it's such a problem to say the pandemic was was an issue but if we try to think about the pandemic as the only issue then I worry, as the pandemic wanes, we're gonna say, okay, well, this is fine. when in fact, it definitely is not fine. It wasn't fine before, and it's not fine. It's not fine now. Uh, I think that as parents consume these kind of studies, it's the same um it's the same tools that you use in trying to evaluate any study, think about, you know how, reliable is the variation that uh, that people are using how large is this study really how plausible is it so some of the times things will come out and you'll say you know I just don't think that it's even feasible that that effect could be that large or could be in that in that direction so although I generally dislike the term gut check I think there is a, a version of gut check that I would describe as you know user Bayesian prior uh where it's really valuable for for people to, think about whether what they're hearing is plausible, given the other things that they know.
1: You know, not everyone consumes tons of news all the time about parenting, and some of us do. For those of us that do, you know, it can be, what we're talking about is sort of the churn that can create. But I wonder, as someone who's in this stuff and looks at data a lot about raising kids, what are a few things that we really have repeated and quality data to indicate matter? in raising, you know, healthy, fulfilled, stable adults. What are some things we can really conclusively count on? Like, these things are pretty well established.
2: So let me give you two. One is little kids and one is more general. So I, I think with, with little kids, um, the one I always point to is uh, allergen introduction. So this is like a relatively new set of data, uh, but we learned kind of in the mid, you know, around 2015, that, uh, that actually introducing allergens to kids early Uh, you know, in the four to six month range rather than waiting until they're older actually makes them much less likely to be allergic. So that's a piece of data, which I always point to people like, Hey, you're asking me, like, is there something that I can do that would be, that actually would have proven data benefits? This is one thing that matters. And the other thing I would point to is sleep. We have a tremendous amount of data from kids going, you know, from all the way up to the end of high school, suggesting that sleep is very important. Many kids do not get enough sleep. That let I me mean, give you just one example of a, of a study there. So um so it, there's a study um, it's people ran with elementary school kids where they made quite small changes to their sleep. So uh, so kids were in sort of one of two treatments. They either were told to go to bed an hour earlier than normal or an hour later than normal for like three or four days, like four days in a week. And at the end of the week, they came in and they, they were evaluated on, they asked their parents how their behavior was and they did some cognitive testing. And even reducing their sleep by an hour made them perform worse on cognitive tests. Their parents said they were jerks. You know all kinds of things, which of course resonate very much. Actually, as a parent, like even when your kids you screw your, with your kids sleep for a couple of nights, they can it, it really affects them. And we have a lot of data that suggests many outcomes are are affected there. So that's for me another place where I'd say you know, if you're if you're picking the things to prioritize, you're prioritizing sleep uh, can be can be quite important.
1: Yeah, the gut check on that definitely resonates with me. That is correct.
2: The the story I always have in my head about this is the one time I made an enormous parenting mistake and accidentally gave my daughter like a highly caffeinated tea at like 430 in the afternoon. Like I just we went to bubble tea like I didn't realize the bubble tea had caffeine in it. And she was awake until like one o'clock in the morning. She was been like, and she was just like the next day, like like I got this note from her teacher that was like, you know, we do these like these multiplication tests, and like you know, last week she got forty, but like today she got like fifteen. That's <laughs> just like I'm really sorry. <laughs> Sleeping
1: is really valuable. Yeah, you could layer in some personal uh, data to that <laughs> to <laughs> what you're reading. last <laughs> I, in case the data was
2: not that like published data was not sufficient. That tea, that
0: bubble tea is convincing. Emily, stepping away from what we as individual parents or caregivers should do, what would we do as a society if we truly believed that children are the world's most important people? What would we change? What would we do differently when it comes to thinking about what's best for our children?
2: One place I would point parents to for some really broad ideas about this in the U.S. is a book called Parent Nation um, by Dana Suskin, which is really almost a call to almost a call to action uh, about, you know, what can we what can we do to improve the lives of parents uh, of children, particularly in the U.S. And, and what she's focused on is really this broad space, I think, is very important, which is support. So we are just not providing parents enough support. And that goes across socioeconomic groups, although it's it's much more salient uh, for you know lower income parents for, for parents of color uh who have just have just have less broad support. Uh and that can come in many kinds of forms, you know, parental leave, child tax credits, universal pre-K. There's all kinds of things that we are not providing that uh that would be beneficial for, for parents. And I think that's that's really a package of of things, picking out one and saying, well, pre-K is more important than a child tax credit or uh, vice versa is quite difficult. But any movement in the direction on those, on those dimensions, uh, I think, would be enormously valuable and a tremendously good investment um, in our kids.
0: That's a great book, by the way.
2: It is a great book.
0: Emily, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been great. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about kids' hopes and dreams and their worries and fears from the book Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids, available on highlights.com or wherever you buy your books. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll subscribe and share the link with your friends. Special thanks to the producer of this podcast, Hillary Bates, and also to our audio engineer, Ted Weckbacher.